The Korean Peninsula gets rocked and the world pays attention today, Tuesday, February 12th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. North Korea's nuclear test poses a challenge to both Washington and Beijing. And later, the Italian journalist who broke the Pope's resignation story got the scoop because she knew Latin. In Italy, you can either do a liceo classico, go to a classical school, or liceo scientifico, a scientific one. She'd been to the classical one, and uh, boy, she knew her stuff. Plus, America's whiskey goes global. Australia's a big one. Japan is huge. Uh, Europe, Britain, just about anywhere alcohol is sold, uh, bourbon is pretty popular. In fact, one company's diluting its product to meet the soaring demand. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. North Korea said it would conduct another nuclear test. The international community warned it not to, but today the North Koreans went and did it anyway. And this was the reaction from passers-by in Pyongyang Square when they saw the news of the nuclear test flash on a giant screen there. And this Pyongyang resident said she was excited by the news. The woman said she was proud of North Korea's accomplishment. She added that the test boosts the nation's faith and its ability to fight any enemy. That last statement, like the North Korean government's propaganda, is aimed squarely at the U.S. It sends a threatening message to Washington just hours before President Obama's State of the Union address tonight. The test also represents a challenge for North Korea's traditional ally next door, China. Tanya Brannigan is with The Guardian newspaper and is in Beijing. So we heard from a North Korean citizen a moment ago on the street talking about the pride that 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 nuke test filled them with and their belief that this proves their nation's military might. I suspect a different sort of reaction in China. What has the Chinese central government in Beijing said about this test? Well, China's made it very clear that it's not happy. It's actually called in the North Korean ambassador, and it's also signed up to the UN Security Council resolution recently, which specifically warned the North off conducting future missile or nuclear tests. Um, And they seem to be taking a much stronger line, perhaps, on the North this time. Now, they haven't gone quite as far as they did back in 2006, when the first uh, nuclear test took place. Back then, they talked about uh, Pyongyang's brazen behavior, and so they were a little more outspoken. But there is a feeling here that perhaps their patience is really starting to run out. Right. And if that patience does indeed uh, bottom out, would China consider cutting ties with North Korea? No, they're not going to be cutting off the North completely. They're long-term allies, although actually it's always been a relationship where there's been quite a lot of mutual suspicion going back decades. But China is still the North's main supplier of aid. It's its main trade partner. And that's really not going to change. Now, there's a feeling, certainly in the West, that China doesn't do enough on North Korea, that if it chose to, it could certainly exert more pressure on it, for example, by cutting off some of the flow of oil or of food uh, into a country which is obviously very poor and, and really needs those resources. But at the same time, from China's point of view, it doesn't want to destabilize the North. 
It really doesn't want to see regime collapse for a number of reasons. It doesn't want to see refugees trying to flood over the border. It doesn't want to see, in the event of reunification, U.S. troops arriving right up at its border. Mm. I mean, I think the key thing really is that the government has sought to try and engage economically with North Korea. Um, And to some extent, they've seen that really as a way of trying to get North Korea back into a negotiating position improve relations to a point where perhaps there's a little bit more trust. I mean, it's also worth saying that it has been quite useful for China in terms of general diplomacy in the region to be able to say, well, look, you know, we're the people who have influence over North Korea and we're doing our our best to rein them in. But some people would argue perhaps China really talks up what it does while not have as much clout as the outside world tends to think. Tanya Brannigan with The Guardian newspaper in Beijing there. Ambassador Stephen Bosworth has spent his career trying to talk with the North Koreans. He was President Obama's special representative for North Korea from 2009 to 2011. He's also served as U.S. ambassador to South Korea. Bosworth says today's nuclear test shows North Korea inching ever closer to its goal. They have to miniaturize the nuclear device. They have to be able to mount it on a missile uh, and I, we have no evidence that they've been able to do that. But clearly, the more they test both missiles and nuclear devices, the further they are along toward that goal. So these have, tests are very bad news for us. They have announced, though, that they've miniaturized a nuclear device, and they did launch that rocket, indicating that, you know, if you do the math, they probably could do both. Well, we don't know, but it's possible. I don't think they've, they're yet at that stage, but clearly they're further along than they were a few months ago and further along, certainly, than we wish they were. How worried should we be? How worried are you? Well, I'm worried about the consequences of this for stability in Northeast Asia, which is a vital region from our point of view and the point of view of the rest of the world. So North Korea's becoming a nuclear weapon state in that region uh, has consequences. It puts pressure on people in Japan who believe Japan should become a nuclear weapon state. It puts pressure on South Korea for the same reason. It puts pressure on Beijing and on the U.S. I don't worry so much about an imminent nuclear attack from North Korea. We still have the same uh, ability to deter nuclear aggression that we had during the entire Cold War, which is a massive deterrent of our own. And North Korea uh, is not crazy. They are not suicidal. They understand the consequences of uh, being a nuclear weapons state vis-a-vis the United States. If you look at this nuclear test and other kind of actions and and words from North Korea in the past, there is a kind of Groundhog Day quality to this event. They threaten, they test, international players threaten sanctions, and then it all starts again after it's calmed down for a period. Where do you start to get any traction in this situation? Well, I think we've got to broaden our focus. I think focusing entirely on their nuclear program as a starting point, is not, being, is not very productive. It certainly hasn't brought us much so far. So I think we have to go back in some ways to an agenda that was agreed in the six-party talks uh, several years ago, which was denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula, uh, economic and energy assistance to the North, establishment of comprehensive diplomatic relations among all parties, and very importantly, at some point, the negotiation of a comprehensive peace treaty to replace the armistice of 1953. 
Right, because the North and the South of Korea are still technically at war. Exactly. And we are still technically at war. Right, with North Korea. Right. You've spent a good part of your career uh, attempting to talk with the North Koreans. Do you feel that you know what that regime is all about now? In some ways, I do. I think their primary goal, what keeps them moving, is they want to perpetuate the regime. And all other objectives and goals are subsidiary to that. And we tend to look at the regime as being responsible to the North to and for the North Korean population. In their view, that uh, that is not the case. They want the regime to continue. So the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, came into office as an unknown quantity. Do you feel you know who the U.S., the world, is dealing with now? No, not really. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's Kim Jong-un or whether it's some collective leadership. I think clearly he does not have uh, political autonomy and authority in North Korea. In North Korea, I think their policy is determined by the senior military uh, leadership and senior leadership in the party and by the broader Kim family, uh, of whom there are many, and they all have a vital stake in the outcome of all of this. Ambassador Stephen Bosworth was U.S. Special Representative for North Korea Policy from 2009 to 2011. He's currently the dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Happy to be here. The Vatican today sought to reassure Catholics about what happens after a pope resigns. These are uncharted waters for the modern Catholic Church. Pope Benedict XVI's resignation is the first in nearly 600 years. Today, Vatican officials made clear Benedict will not play any role in the conclave to elect his successor. They also said that all symbols of his rule as pope, like his papal ring, will be destroyed, just as they're destroyed after a pontiff dies. Benedict's resignation yesterday was a surprise, not just because of what he said, but also because of how he said it. Here's more from the world's Patrick Cox. So in case you haven't heard it yet, here's how Pope Benedict made his big announcement yesterday at a conference of cardinals. After repeatedly having examined my conscience before God, the Pope said, I have come to the certainty that my strengths are no longer suited to the task. Now, he wasn't speaking in German, his mother tongue, or Italian, as many at the Vatican do. No, he was speaking in Latin. I find it extremely uh, moving and exciting because he clearly can speak Latin in a way that very few people can. Lots of people study it, but they can't actually speak it. This is Harry Mount, author of a book called Carpe Diem, Put a Little Latin in Your Life. And it was striking that in that great um, conference among the cardinals yesterday, quite a lot of the cardinals didn't understand the Pope. Whoops, that's quite a moment to miss out on. It flew over the heads of most reporters there too. They tend to wait for the Vatican press office to translate the Pope's words. But one reporter did understand what the Pope was saying. Giovanna Chiri of the Italian news agency ANSA. I understood, but I, I, didn't, I didn't want to believe. But despite not wanting to believe the words, Giovanna Chiri did her job. She broke the news that the Pope would step down. And in so doing, she became part of the story. In Italian, we have a classic culture, and for a Vaticanist, uh, to know a little Latin is important. Latin is the language of the church. 
And the Pope spoke in Latin because uh, it was a legal decision. It was a legal decision, and Latin is the main language of the Holy See, the Vatican's administrative arm. Now, Giovanna Kiri is no spring chicken. She's often described as a veteran Vaticanista. But author Harry Mount says her high school Latin must have stayed with her. In Italy, you can either do a liceo classico, go to a classical school, or liceo scientifico, a scientific one. She'd been to the classical one, and uh, boy, she knew her stuff. The Pope appears to know his stuff, as well as his speeches in Latin. He's reintroduced the Latin mass, and he even now tweets in Latin, or someone at the Vatican does. Harry Mount says that other younger people are also helping to revive the language. Several countries report that more school kids are studying Latin. And if you're wondering what's the point of learning a language that perhaps only a few hundred people speak fluently... Harry Mount has this to tell you. It does have an extraordinary effect on Western European art, architecture, literature and language. So in English, two-thirds of English words are Latinate. And if you know that, if you know that basis, you can swap between Latinate and Anglo-Saxon registers and you just understand the language like somebody who knows the rules of, I don't know, football or golf inside out. You can play around with the language more because you know how it was constructed. And there is, of course, one more reason to study Latin. You might wind up breaking some news. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. Dei Grazia Regina. There's a bit more Latin for you. Dei is God, Regina means queen, and if you're really good, you'll hear the grace in Grazia. It adds up to queen by the grace of God, as in Queen Elizabeth II. She's not about to abdicate, though it's notable that Dutch Queen Beatrix opted out of the throne last month, but not Queen Elizabeth. Nope, she's showing no sign of wanting to step down. In fact, today the popular BBC radio program Woman's Hour announced that the Queen tops its list of the most powerful women in Britain. Okay, in practice, as some have pointed out, she only commands obedience from her large staff and little corgis, but she is queen after all, and as such is the ceremonial head of both the Anglican Church and the armed forces. When the Woman's Hour panel put together their list, they sought out women who, quote, were judged to have power because they had reached a place where they have control. So you've got writer J.K. Rowling on the list and TV producer Elizabeth Murdoch, the daughter of Rupert Murdoch. But when you talk power women in Britain, no surprise, Queen Elizabeth II is still tops. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Europe's horsemeat scandal grows by the day. Today, British police raided and shut down two facilities suspected of selling horsemeat labeled as beef, a slaughterhouse in northern England, and a meat processing plant in Wales. Horsemeat has been found in several beef products throughout Europe, with supermarkets in several nations pulling products from their shelves. As a result, the European Union has strict food regulations on its books, but EU officials are now scrambling to figure out how to respond to the scandal. The world's Jerry Haddon reports. There are two types of horsemeat, the kind you can eat, which many Europeans do, and the kind you can't. And in recent days in Europe, there have been two types of fraud around it. First, passing off the non-edible horsemeat as edible. That's what happened in Ireland, investigators say, where horses injected with a medicine poisonous to humans had their papers doctored to pass food chain inspections. There was a large demand from the European mainland for horsemeat. 
That demand couldn't be met by the traditional UK suppliers. Stephen Philpott is the chief executive of the Ulster Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in Ireland. He says there was a widespread conspiracy among suppliers. Between them all, they conspired to work out a system to get horses which are unfit for human consumption, to get them re-microchipped, forged passports. We know what we saw, we know the scale of what we saw, and we know the number of horses we saw. Um, We reckon there could be as many as 70,000 horses unaccounted for in Ireland tonight. As that scandal unfolds, the second passing off horse meat, edible or not, as ground beef. So far, horse has been found in major brands of frozen lasagna, for example, implicating retailers and suppliers across the continent. The UK's Environment Secretary, Owen Patterson, says Europe's quickly developing a credibility problem. It is unacceptable that people have been deceived in this way. There appears to have been criminal activity in an attempt to defraud the consumer. The prime responsibility for dealing with this lies with retailers and food producers who need to demonstrate that they've taken all necessary actions to ensure the integrity of the food chain in this country. Europe does already have high standards for food safety, says Chris Elliott, an expert on the subject at Queen's University in Belfast. He says where the system breaks down and where fraud is easiest is with processed foods. Processing is a very, very complex business. We take different types of meats and, and different types of materials from all over the world and they're shipped. They, they'll come across many, many different uh, continental borders, end up in a processing factory, and then the product ends up on the supermarket shelf. To find out where that material came from in the first place is now close to impossible. Which means tracking down the people responsible for the horse meat fraud will take time. One line of investigation leads to French suppliers, but they point their fingers at Romanian slaughterhouses. Stéphane Le Foll is France's agriculture minister. What I note is that in this procurement system, there are very complicated commercial circuits, he says, which bring traders into play. I've even got the impression that a Cypriot trader subcontracted to a Dutch trader who then himself subcontracted. And now we get to Romania and Poland, he says. So there, too, there is work to be done to get out of this fog. The fog obscures more than just the origin of meat, says Chris Elliott, and it reaches well beyond Europe. So one of the great food frauds in the world at the minute is in olive oil, massive amount of fraud in fish, honey is implicated, milk, fruit juices... It happens with many, many different types of foods. Elliot says the problem could be fixed with stricter regulations and controls, but that would drive food prices up 10 to 20 percent. Meanwhile, there's one sector in Europe offering another solution. It's the eat local folks. Like Antonio Gomez, the owner of his family-run butcher shop in Barcelona. Small outfits like mine, he says, we get our meat from nearby producers we've known all our lives. And it's all certified, he says, showing the forms that come in with each butchered animal. This tells you where the creature was born, raised, he says, what it ate and when it was slaughtered. No chance horse or any other meat can sneak its way into his display case, he says, pretending to be something else. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. For the average consumer, it's not just what you put on your fork, it's also what's in the glass. Take bourbon. The name may have come from France, but for whiskey lovers, it's the classic American spirit. It's the official booze of the U.S. Congress, in fact, and there are laws here about how to make the stuff. Lately, there's been an uptick in bourbon sales around the world, so much so that distiller Maker's Mark recently announced that they had to dilute their recipe to meet global demand. 
Tom Fisher is a bourbon aficionado and the creator of bourbonblog.com. I was surprised. I have not seen a whiskey do this yet. Isn't this kind of commercial suicide? (laughs) Well, I guess that's yet to be seen. I'm told that the maker's mark at 42% alcohol versus 45 should probably be on the shelves in the next few weeks. When did bourbon first start to make it behind uh, the bar abroad? I know that it's gotten more popular the last 10 years or so, and the turn back to the pre-prohibition popularity of cocktails is another element that I think that has added to that interest in bourbon and the interest in Americana. But I think it's also the flavor. Bourbon's a very approachable uh, alcohol. It's very easy to mix. It's very easy to drink straight. Uh, There's a lot of complexities. There's a lot of differences between bourbon. What are the big export markets now for bourbon? Well, Australia's a big one. Japan is huge. Uh, Europe, Britain... I, I, just about anywhere alcohol is sold, uh, bourbon is pretty popular. But I would say Europe and Australia and Japan are the biggest. American whiskey is the fastest growing category as far as uh, exports in the world. Do, do you think Maker's Mark just did not anticipate uh, the worldwide popularity of bourbon? Well, I think that a lot of brands are suffering the uh, the same challenge. While Turkey has added to their production, Jim Beam has And you see small craft distilleries like, uh, for example, Breckenridge uh, Distillery in Breckenridge, Colorado. They're making a really fine bourbon. There's some bourbons being made in Texas and New York. So bourbon doesn't have to be made in Kentucky. And because bourbon has become so popular, small craft distilleries are making it all over the country. Is anybody outside of this country trying to make their own bourbon? And have you tasted one that ranks up? You can't actually legally call it bourbon if it's made outside the U.S. To be made a bourbon, it has to be made in the U.S. But there are companies that are making some very fine whiskeys that are doing similar approaches to bourbon, I would say. But I don't think anybody has really gone for that market. They, they haven't said, we're going to try to make a bourbon, but call it you know, something else and call it a bourbon just mm-hmm. to uh, you know, confuse people. You've got a glass there with you right now? I do. Take a little pull on it and tell us what you're tasting. If I, uh, if I breathe, you can actually hear me nosing it, right? That's a nose. Mm. Well, on this one, I'm getting some nice cinnamon flavors. And let's be clear, no water, no ice, right? I usually drink mine neat. I like bourbon neat. Tom Fisher, bourbon aficionado and the creator of bourbonblog.com. Thanks so much. Cheers. It's been great chatting with you. By the way, there is one place in the world that won't be affected by this announcement from Maker's Mark, Australia. Bourbon there is already 40%. A bit weaker, sure, but that doesn't dilute the enjoyment of one bourbon lover, Matt Rock, a Cajun musician from Rosebud, Australia. I just love it down south there, you know, sort of all the way from Kentucky down to Mississippi. And uh, I just love the culture and the people and the food and the music and, of course, the bourbon. Diluted or not, he's in love with bourbon and with the American South. We wondered if all this global interest in American whiskey has resulted in new ways to drink bourbon. What do you think? Ice or no ice? Soda water? Coke? Hey, it's a question, not an order. (laughs) Tell us how you take your bourbon at theworld.org. News headlines are next here on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a former biker gang member from Denmark says he helped the CIA track down a top terrorism suspect in Yemen, and he told reporters all about it. We've asked him ten times why you want to step forward with this when you can lead a quiet life 
And his answer has always been, I want people to know what I've done and who I am. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. We've heard a lot about drone strikes recently. They were the subject of that leaked memo authorizing the killing of U.S. citizens who become operational leaders within al-Qaeda or its branches. The White House is under growing pressure to make that target selection process more transparent, especially when the target is an American. Such was the case of Muslim cleric Anwar al-Awlaki. He was killed in September 2011 by a U.S. drone strike in Yemen. Alaki was a U.S.-born American citizen and an operational leader of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Turns out the CIA tracked him down with the help of a double agent with Denmark's intelligence service, the PET. That's according to the Danish newspaper Jyllandsposten. Orla Borg is with the paper. He's one of the co-winners of the European Press Prize for his story about double agent Morten Storm. Borg says he received a call from Storm in October 2011 and later interviewed him for 120 hours to check out his extraordinary account. It appears that Morten Storm, back in 1997, converted to Islam and traveled to Yemen to study Islam and study Arabic. And there he had become friends with Anwar al-Avlaki, whom he met in the capital of Yemen, Sana. How do we know that's true, that in 97 he, he had this conversion? Well, we didn't know, and some of the other stories we didn't know. But when we started to ask him questions, he showed us pictures from that time. He played recordings with conversations he would have had with Avlaki over the phone. He played videos with Avlaki. He showed us emails and the way they were decrypted when they were writing together over the Internet or on Facebook or through USB sticks. So it was obvious that what he was telling us was the truth and that it was possible for us as newspaper people to actually document it. Now, according to Morton Storm's narrative, he had been a sympathizer of Anwar al-Awlaki, but he says it was a series of complicated events that prompted a crisis of faith and left him disillusioned with the cause of jihad. Do you know what it was? What were those events? Morton Storm is an extremist in every way. When he does something, he does it to the extreme. Once he became a Muslim... He went into Islam and became a jihadist and an extremist. And he wanted so much to go and fight for Islam. This was in 2005, where in Somalia, the Islamic courts had actually gained control of a quite large area of Somalia, and they were trying to install the Syria. Now, Morton Storm had friends there, and he was prepared to fight jihad there. But then he got a call from the friends in Somalia saying, don't come here, the Ethiopian troops have taken control, so if you land here, they'll arrest you right away. At that time, in Morton Storm's mind, he was all dressed up but had nowhere to go then. And he says that that started frustration inside him that actually made him doubt what he was about to do. And then he turned totally around and turned against Islam and started working for the Danish intelligence service. 
you know, I assume it's standard operating procedure that intelligence agencies like the CIA and MI6 and, and the Danish PET would not permit agents and double agents to talk about their activities. Isn't he putting himself in danger doing this? Yeah, definitely, because now the al-Qaeda will know that he had helped the Americans locate Avlaki. And in this process, we asked him several times, we would like to do your story, but we'd like to do it anonymously, give another name and so on. But he said, no, I want my name out. There was also something just driving him that, that's kind of inexplicable to me. I mean, he took a quarter million dollars in cash from the Danish Secret Service to keep quiet, and yet he didn't. He had something else driving him. Do you know what that was? I think it's some sort of pride. You have to remember that before Morton Storm became a Muslim, he was a member of a biker's gang. And in that environment, pride, acknowledgement really matters. We've asked him ten times, why do you want to step forward with this when you can live a quiet life? And his answer has always been, I want people to know what I've done and who I am. My family and friends think that within the last six years I've been a total Islamist, whereas I've been helping fighting terrorism, and I'm proud of that. The Danish intelligence offered him $250,000 to keep quiet. Now, if anybody gave anybody else an offer like that, they would take the money and run. So why doesn't he? I mean, he wants some recognition for his actions. I mean, I, I would imagine that in a court of law, if this were a trial, the prosecution would point to Morton Storm and say, are you really going to trust a guy like this? Yes, and that's what we asked ourselves the first couple of times we met him. So we've interviewed him over 120 hours, and we've documented every single thing we have put in the paper. And we believe his story is true. The only place where we really can't prove his story is that the CIA say, yes, Morton Storm, you did work for us, you did help us, you did try to track down Avlaki for us, but it wasn't your mission that actually led to the tracking down and the killing of Avlaki. There was a different parallel mission that actually led us, i.e. the Americans, to Avlaki. So we've never been able to prove that it was his mission that led to Avlaki, but we have documented very strongly that he tried, together with the CIA and the Danish intelligence, to do so. Ola Borg with the Danish newspaper Posten. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Plenty of intrigue, meanwhile, in Guantanamo, where the trial of the five alleged 9-11 co-conspirators resumed today. The defendants include Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the self-professed mastermind behind the attacks. He and the others face 2,976 counts of murder. The trial is taking the form of a special tribunal for wartime offenses, a unique blend of civilian trial and military court-martial. The proceedings have been dogged with problems, though. Reporter Arun Roth is in Guantanamo, covering the trial for both PBS Frontline and the world. Uh, proceedings ground to a halt yesterday, Arun, over concerns of attorney-client confidentiality. Tell us what happened. Yeah, that's that's the big issue up before the court right now. There's an emergency defense motion to remove what they call sustained barriers to attorney-client communication and prohibit any electronic monitoring. Uh, as you might recall, we talked a couple of weeks ago when this mysterious sensor cut off the feed from the courtroom. And that's sort of what set all this in, in motion. Nobody apparently, aside from the prosecution or government, had an idea that there was another 
entity listening outside. They called it an, an original classification authority, when presuming it might be the CIA because they would be the ones involved in this material. But uh, when that happened, the defense kind of uh, got very concerned about, about that and wanted to find out who else was listening and where they were listening and if they're being listened to, not just inside the courtroom, but also uh, when they're talking with their clients, for instance, in their holding cells outside the court. Uh, there's an extensive recording system in the courtroom, a lot of microphones, a lot of very sensitive microphones. And the fear is that even when they're pressing their mute button, they can be heard and that they're being recorded uh, by this external authority and that therefore their confidential conversations with their clients are, are being monitored. Now, it's interesting. You and other observers have to watch the proceedings from behind soundproof glass, and you hear the proceedings with a 40-second delay. That's got to be kind of disorienting. Why do they do that? Uh, the 40-second delay is, is, again, to prevent the, the spillage of classified information. So the idea is the second somebody starts to say anything that's sensitive, somebody hits the button, and we don't hear any of that. Can you see the defendants right now, Arun? Yeah, we're working in the media center right now. Uh, on occasion, I, I, I do. Uh, we have a lottery to get into the, uh, to the to the courtroom. And what is it like to look upon the face of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the the self-professed mastermind behind the nine eleven attacks? You know, it's it's almost uh, you know seeing him smiling and 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 talking and engaged. It, it it's clear that he. He's very comfortable in his own skin. Uh, you know, he, he's okay with what he's done. He went on, on a rant uh, last October, you know, where he went off about how the United States, uh, you know, basically deserved what 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 they they got, and and uh, you know, he he's um, it, it's something about seeing the casualness of the man. Um, maybe that that old uh, line about the banality of of evil, because he's just uh, you know, in a way, he. He wasn't as big as I expected him to be. He's he's kind of short. He's put on a, some some weight here, and he's he's grown this uh, beard to look a little, little bit more devout. I mean, that, maybe that's something about it that that he could just be somebody's uncle, and, and it's just that you know all this uh, horrendous, hateful um, stuff that, that that that's attached to him. Who else is there in the gallery? Is it just journalists and human rights activists, or are there any members of the public, relatives of victims, for example? Yeah, aside from the journalists and the, the NGO representatives, the only people that are allowed in are uh, family members, victim family members from the 9-11 attacks. And this time, there were only six that came down. There are usually 10, but th there were several that got stuck in New York as a result of the blizzard last week. Now, Guantanamo is a military base in prison, and we all have a sense of what that implies. And yet, we're talking Cuba. We're talking the tropics. I mean, there are beautiful sunsets there. That's got to be kind of incongruous. It's very strange, Marco. I, I can say, you know, because there have been a lot of delays in the court and times when they just had to call things off for the, for the day because of these confusions they've had, there's been time when we've had a lot of time to kill around here. And so I, I've, I've, I swam and I think the most beautiful beach I've ever been to in, in my life. It's, it's really gorgeous here. And it's like you said, it's very surreal because we're basically a, a bay, you know, in the Caribbean facing Jamaica, beautiful crystal blue water, coral reefs. Amazing wildlife everywhere. Uh, there's basically a wildlife preserve. So you see, you know, iguanas and banana rats and, and all sorts of interesting wildlife. And again, you know, it, it's a it's a regular it, it's a it's a navy base. So there are people here with families. There's a soccer field, a football field, you know, the McDonald's, KFC, all that stuff. And then, you know, in this corner of the island, uh, concertina wire and prisons and and this this court complex. Reporter Arun Roth in Guantanamo for PBS Frontline and the World. Thank you very much. Thanks, Marco.
Arun is blogging for us at the 9-11 trial. You can see his latest post on the ongoing dispute over the alleged monitoring of defendants and get the latest from Guantanamo from Arun on Twitter. Follow him at Arun Roth. That's A-R-U-N-R-A-T-H. Now, for today's GeoQuiz, we're not going to ask you for the name of the capital of Burma or Myanmar. Asking for the name of Burma's capital is a bit of a trick question anyway. It used to be Yangon, the country's largest city. But a few years ago, the capital was officially moved to Naypyidaw. But what about naming Burma's cultural capital? It's located about 500 miles north of Yangon on the Irrawaddy River. It's considered the center of Burmese culture. Monasteries and pagodas dot the landscape. So do cafes that serve steaming bowls of rice noodles and fish soup, the national dish. So can you name Burma's cultural capital? The answer is coming up later in the program. Hunting with falcons. It's a passion for many in the United Arab Emirates. Falcons are prized animals there and can cost tens of thousands of dollars, which is why the UAE has a state-of-the-art facility to help care for the birds. It's called the Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital. From Abu Dhabi, Binish Ahmed reports on some of the challenges the hospital faces. Mohammed Nafis spends a lot of time giving pedicures to some of the fiercest falcons on earth. So we don't color the nail, but uh, we give some massage, apply cream. Sometimes we wash and hot bath stuff. Mohammed Nafis is a veterinary assistant at the Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital. He says that falcons bred in captivity, like the ones in this hospital are missing some of what their natural environment provides them, like rough surfaces, to dull down their talons. So the birds get regular nail appointments. They also get their feathers done from time to time. If you open any drawer here, you will find thousands of falcon feathers. All these drawers are full of feathers. A single broken feather can impair a falcon's flight. Dr. Margaret Gabriella Mueller is the director of the Falcon Hospital. She spent more than a decade fine-tuning techniques and tools for her patients. You always have to think what you could readjust for falcons, what you can use for falcons, even if it has a completely different usage normally. Like we use a carpet knife, for example, to trim the nails of the falcon, which is not the idea of it, but it works perfectly. So there is nothing better than this one. Dr. Mueller performs some procedures that require tools which are a bit more sophisticated than a carpet knife. So we are doing a lot of routine examinations, which means blood examinations, we do endoscopies, we do x-rays to see that everything is okay. But we are also conducting all different kind of surgical procedures. We are also doing ophthalmology here. And falcon owners spare no expense for their most treasured birds, which can cost up to $100,000. Just ask Muhammad Aloum who's sitting in the hospital lobby with a sacred falcon on his arm and a bored expression on his face. Even if there is a small problem, my manager tells me to bring the falcon here for a full checkup. Alum, who's originally from Bangladesh, tells me in Urdu that he looks after and trains 26 falcons. That means he spends a lot of time in this hospital lobby. I take care of the falcons. Every need, I attend to every little issue they might have. I'm here at least once a week to bring the birds in for checkups. And he's in good company. The Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital treats over 7,000 falcons a year. Falconry remains a popular hobby, 
even though the birds of prey aren't relied on to hunt for meat as they once were. They've been revered for centuries as skilled hunters, who can take down animals four times their weight. And Dr. Mueller says falcons are still a really important part of life for people here. If you look at Abu Dhabi, for example, Abu Dhabi is a very modern city now, but all this has been established within the past 40 years. So before this, the Emiratis were Bedouins who lived in the desert. So for them, it is extremely important to keep their own roots, to keep those traditions alive. And Dr. Margaret Muller and her staff at the Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital will try to help them do just that. For The World, I'm Binish Ahmed, Abu Dhabi. You can see falcons waiting patiently for their petties at the Abu Dhabi Falcon Hospital. As birds of prey go, they're pretty darn cute. We've got pictures at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Most guidebooks tell you that the city of Mandalay in central Myanmar is the country's cultural heart. But they don't tell you this. Mandalay is the answer to today's geo-quiz. The city was Myanmar's political capital in pre-colonial days. Today, modern Mandalay is still home to scads of traditional artists and performers, museums, and monasteries. Reporter Bruce Wallace went there recently to find out how the changes happening elsewhere in Myanmar or Burma are showing up in its cultural capital. A funny thing happened during Barack Obama's historic visit to Myanmar in November. As comedian Lou Ma tells it, Obama, a Myanmar military general, and the comedian were in a helicopter. And the president, get this, he starts throwing money down to crowds waiting on the ground. Obama threw the money on the ground. Many people, they are clapping and cash the money. Lou Ma told me this story, fictional by the way, at his home and performance space in Mandalay. He's part of a semi-legendary comedy and dance group called the Mustache Brothers. He has a great mustache. So the general sees how happy the people on the ground are, and he asks Lou Ma how he can make them happy. Lou Ma says simple. He could just throw himself out of the helicopter. Okay, you don't need money. You only jump down. (laughs) That jogging. That gag may sound a little harsh. But jokes like this have been a standard part of the Mustache Brothers act for a while. Luma's brother Papale tells me one from back in the early days. It features Ne Win, the military general who seized power in 1962, ushered in a repressive regime, and soon after, runaway inflation. <laughs> Food had gotten too expensive, so Papale goes fishing. He proudly brings a fish home to his wife. But she can't fry the fish because oil has gotten too expensive. And she can't roast it because charcoal has gotten too expensive. Bummed out, Papale returns to the lake and throws the fish back in. Before swimming away, the fish jumps out of the water. The fish say to the Papale. So the fish says to Parparle, Oh, Parparle, tell Niwin, thank you for saving my life. You might be thinking, wait, they made fun of a repressive military regime in public? The show, which used to tour throughout the country, mixes barbed commentary with more traditional dancing and puppetry. And their words have landed them in hot water. Papale has been thrown in jail three times, once for seven years. They're not getting locked up now, but they're still only supposed to do shows in the performance space on the ground floor of their house. They may have broken that rule once or twice. Lu Ma thinks Myanmar is a bit freer these days, and he puts great hope in the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi now has a seat in parliament. But change is slow. One day it must change. One day it must change, but not now. The military generals have only taken off their uniforms and put them aside. They haven't thrown them away. Any time they can put them on again. So half I believe, half I don't. Half trust, half not trust. The Mustache Brothers are along what some call Mandalay's West End, an area sprinkled with small arts venues. While we talk, a traditional Burmese orchestra is warming up next door. 
Realizing we're not going to beat them, we join them. They are awesome. The eight-member orchestra hammers out their theme song on a bunch of traditional instruments, tuned skin and brass drums, a bamboo block, a reedy woodwind. If Yan Nang had his way, there'd also be space in Mandalay's cultural scene for some less traditional material. He started DJing ten years ago, and says that by 2006, Mandalay actually had a bit of a club scene. Two hotel lounges had DJs most nights of the week, and he was making a living playing music. All that stopped two years ago when authorities cracked down and stopped issuing club permits. While Myanmar takes fitful steps forward in some areas, Yan Nang sees the crackdown as a sign of a culture that's still pretty conservative. The official reason was that fights had broken out at clubs, but he thinks these clubs just didn't sit well in tradition-bound Mandalay. Yan Nang misses spinning records for people. The feeling can't be compared. When you're in front of 500 or 1,000 people, giving them the music and the mood they want, it's just really, really happy. I hope one day we can get that kind of club scene back when the country really changes. Until then, he's trying to break into the real estate market. He makes mixes in his spare time. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace in Mandalay. We have a photo from Myanmar's cultural capital, including pictures of the impressive facial hair worn by the Mustache Brothers. That slideshow is at theworld.org. He's known as the Black Elvis in his homeland of Australia, but this tune could have you thinking he's the Aussie Johnny Cash. The city lights are driving me so crazy As I walk lonely streets of old time Stranger in My Land is the latest album from Australian country singer Roger Knox. Knox is Aboriginal. His album is a collection of songs written by Aborigine artists, like this one written by Harry Williams. Oh, I wish that I was back in the time. Hear the drone Roger Knox sings cowboy songs, but with a uniquely Australian perspective. Knox admits his music might reach a broader audience if Aboriginal issues didn't dominate the songs, but that's not a road he wants to take. I still like to talk about my uh, culture and the ways of my people, and because we need to retain that. I can sing any song. I can do anything I want to do, but I, uh, within my heart, I, I would like to keep on you know, telling my stories. Knox didn't grow up listening to country music. He was raised on the Tumala Aboriginal Mission, where he was weaned on gospel music. Like, I grew up singing gospel music, because where I grew up, it was on a, a mission, like a reservation. You know, because song was important to us. The only music we knew in those early years was 
was going for music. It was later that Knox started listening to some of Australia's country artists, and when it came to recording Stranger in My Land, Knox decided to collaborate with artists from across the musical spectrum. Canadian indie rockers The Sadies, John Langford from British punk band The Mekons, and American country music legend the late Charlie Leuven. I think it was fantastic. It was just really uplifting. It was a great honor to have people like that, you know. It was really overwhelming to me. So to take us out today, here's Roger Knox singing the song Stranger in My Country. That's all for us today. Coming up tonight, of course, is the President's State of the Union Address. We'll unpack his speech tomorrow from the economy to renewed calls for gun control. There's a lot that people beyond our borders will be paying close attention to. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. Stranger in my country Stranger in my Today there's somewhere no count Tomorrow is something is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.